You're listening to the fifth episode of Season 4 of The Wicked Podcast. I'm still Mike Moore. This podcast is still about songs written for or to or about women. Mostly, it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating and ruminating around a song from my album Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to it like one watches a video of a car accident over and over in slow motion. Episode 5, Nortel Love Song. Having been raised in a fundamentalist group we were still part of and which held our membership and social and dating connections in the community over our head if various rules were broken, going to school and working and socializing out where many pretty young women were was a delicate balance. There weren't many young women left in our side of the church division that had happened, and as far as we were concerned, we had about as much in common with those young women we grew up with, but whose family had gone the other way in the big split, as we did with Muslims, Sikhs, and Orthodox Jews. They just weren't marriage material, not of the faith. Oh, people like Michael Vetter and I were starting to consider risking disfavor in our church by such strongly frowned upon, but not fatal misbehaviors, as going to see live music and movies, of drinking alcohol in moderation, even in bars, but we had limits. We didn't intend to risk getting full-on kicked out and shunned by getting drunk regularly or by having actual penetrative sexual congress with a real live girl. Oh, we were pretty up for flirting with and even going on casual dates and maybe fooling around just a little bit with these exciting worldly girls, but we needed to draw the line somewhere. And that put us in with a whole bunch of other odd young folks who, for one reason or other, mostly to do with our parents and birth cultures, hadn't ever really integrated comfortably into hookup culture. It was going on in the world around us, and we were barely thinking about maybe putting our big toe in to see what the temperature was like. Michael Vetter sent me an account of his first kiss, and it is certainly illustrative. Important to remember that the girl I was writing letters to, which in brethren terms was like going steady, had given me the boot, having never so much as hugged, kissed, or touched my person in any way whatsoever, to seriously brethren date Michael Vetter instead of Mike Moore. And Michael dumped her because he wanted to explore the world around him. So, when he went off to Pratt Art School in New York City, Michael was a babe in the woods, as it were. I found it interesting that as much as this backwoods Pennsylvania fundamentalist guy was from Mars as far as his Italian New York City roommate Mark was concerned, Michael was in class, in art school, with various non-brethren people of rather similar backgrounds, people who'd seldom, if ever, been in the same room as a naked person up to this point, but who were now drawing, painting, and sculpting real live naked models for class experimenting in various other ways that weren't 100% limited to paper, canvas, and clay as well. So note what happens when you know that no matter what happens of an evening, sex is not on the menu. My first kiss was when I was 19. I had been going to Pratt University and was in the second semester of my first year there. This was 
what, like 1992, I believe. The first semester I had stayed in the dorms. My roommate's name was Jay Papaleo, and he was an Italian guy. He used to shave his butt because he said, well, we're Italians, we eat a lot. And it saves on toilet paper. The second semester, I moved out with Mark Labate, who was probably the most profane guy I've ever met. And for that very reason, I was attracted to the friendship that we had because he was so intense. Everybody else in the class, well, the ones who were my friends, Debbie, the Jehovah's Witness, who was very strict, Jen, large girl, who was Debbie's friend, Heather Jambois, who was raised extremely strict, probably Pentecostal, but was madly in love with me, and Christian, who was not a Christian, but his name was Christian, Christian Mehir. He was an excellent artist. Anyways, all of these, my friends, they warned me against Mark Labate. They were like, don't hang out with that guy. He's awful. He's just terrible. But at the same time, he had a super intensity. So we moved out onto Steuben Street, which was next to the White Castle. This was over the barbed wire, razor wire fence that was all around Pratt. And we called it Stupid Street because you would stand by the window almost any night of the week and you could hear gunfire. At that time, the in Brooklyn, the Bloods and the Crips were at war with one another. And shortly after I left, they, they were all put into prison until I came back um, years later with my wife, Bethany, and they, they were all getting out of prison at that time, which was funny because one of them came up to me and he's like, hey, I recognize you. And I was like, I don't know who this guy is from Adam. So we were living in this place on Steuben Street and you could look out the window at night and see the cars pull up and the guys go into the building below us and come out and then get the, their, they were getting cracked. You would see them smoking it up in their car and driving away. Mark was always amazed at my Christian upbringing. He's like, you've never listened to rock music? Oh, I'm, I'm going to educate you. He would get out his tapes and he would be like, okay, this is Kansas. Listen to this. And he would play like, you know, carry on my wayward son. And then he would play the bass guitar, but he didn't have an amp. So he would always um, sit there with his electric bass and play along with it. He was really good at that. And he was going to school for architecture for... I don't know what reason. Oh, I know what reason. Because his dad had studied under Frank Lloyd Wright, supposedly. That's how he told the story. And uh, he, he felt ob obligated to follow in his father's footsteps. Whereas even to this day, I think that he probably should have gone into playing bass guitar and gotten into a rock band. He could play any song on the radio. After having lived with him for like two months three months, I don't know how long. He's like, Grizzly, because I had a big beard at the time. Listen, um, I've set up a blind date for you. And I was like, 
what? He's like, you've never been kissed, right? And I was like, yeah, no, I've never been kissed before. And he's like, well, there's these uh, two girls up in the, the Bronx from where I'm from, and uh, they have, we're going to go up there, and uh, we're going to go out on a date together. And I was like, this was very intriguing to me. At the same time, kind of like, uh, I always held back a bit with Mark. I was like, well, okay. I was like, oh, this, what, what can it hurt to go on a blind date? So I had the I had a car for the weekend, and I drove us up to the Bronx, and we got to this house and we got out, and two girls came out onto the porch, and one was short and very chubby, and the other one was tall and absolutely drop dead gorgeous, and I was like, oh dear, this is looking terrible, and he leans over to me and whispers in my ear, hey. I get the one on the left. And I looked, and that was the chubby one. And I was like, he wants the one on the left. I was like, well, okay. That sounds great. And so we went up to the porch, and we introduced ourselves. And the girls came out, and got we got into my car, which was a white Jetta. Uh, it wasn't my car. It was owned by my father. And uh, we drove down into Manhattan. Now, we were only 19 at the time, but Mark's like, oh. I know this bar we can go to this bar they they don't card you at all and you can get in at 19 so we went down to the bar we parked the car and, and went into the bar and sure enough they didn't card us and we got into the bar and like i had been in a bar maybe two times by this point we had gone to the alibi which was next to the fraternity that mark was trying to get into but i don't think he ever got in so we went into this bar and sat up at the bar got a drink or two I was feeling a little bit buzzed by this point because I hadn't drank much in bars before. And Mark and Jen, I remember her name, the chubby one, but they they went off and were talking somewhere. Maybe I think they were playing a game of pool on a small table. And me and Erica were sitting at the bar just kind of talking. We were getting along pretty good, and she was just gorgeous. I think she was Jewish. It came to a, a point where we are both just staring at each other. And she says, I feel like I'm never going to see you again after this night. And I looked her in the eye and I said, that's right. At which point we started to kiss. And I believe we kissed for probably about six hours straight. At some point, I don't know who was driving when we went back up to the Bronx, but we just continuously kissed. And it was a world of exploration. It was so fantastic. I had never imagined how much enjoyment and fun it could be. It was absolute bliss for both of us. I had the impression that she had never kissed anyone either, just by the way that we both went at it. And there came a point at about three o'clock in the morning where we were cuddled up pretty hot and heavy on a couch. And Erica's older brother came out of a back room and was like, okay, it's time for you two to go to bed. And she like stiffened up and that was it. The next morning we woke up and Mark's like, you ready to go? And I was like, yeah, I guess, you know, and I still have all of this dripping of, of feeling of all of the kissing that had gone on the night before. I was in some, you know, crazy world. I was like, yeah, I guess. I think Erica came out and like kind of 
waved goodbye as we were leaving because she had just woken up. But I never saw her again, ever. And that was the end of that. That was my first kiss. But I gotta say, it was a pretty good experience. I, I don't really have any guilt or bad feeling about it. No, I don't. It was really good. Really good. And so it was a conscious stepping out into the world and drinking a beer in a bar. Very conscious. Very much enjoyed it. And yes, I have gone too far in many of my escapades. I never lost myself. And the times I did, God picked me up. Well, the times that it seemed that I lost myself, God protected me. I'll say that. But, in another sense, it was up to me to pick myself back up and to keep moving. I've made a lot of mistakes, but my first kiss wasn't one of them. One of Michael's brothers, who has certainly in recent decades done a few genuinely bad things, was excommunicated and shunned from their assembly back then for sleeping in the same bed as the woman he went on to marry, without laying a hand or any other part of his anatomy on her, just to show her he could do that. You see, like he and I, she'd been given that supremely unhelpful fundamentalist teaching that women have to say no to sex because men can't. I soon found out... If a worldly woman you liked tried to seduce you or gave big hints as to what she thought was going to happen between you, and you quietly but firmly, boringly explained about your religious views, she would instantly hate you forever, and after her not quite listening to you for a bit, feel horrible about herself to boot for having failed to change your religion for you, so to speak. That was always a deal-breaker. She'd have been far more comfortable with the roles reversed. There's a clash of cultures that whether or not people admitted it in my teens and 20s and 30s, hookup culture was was normal. It was what people expected, some degree of hookup culture. The, the assumption is you're going to hook up. One of the things you'll hear about yourself in the podcast is that you kiss someone all night. Why does anyone do that? Well, it's because you weren't going to have sex. So if you're not going to have sex and you start kissing, it's not going to go to sex. So you enjoy the kissing, so it, it lasts all night, the kissing, because that's the thing, is the kissing. It's not a precursor. It's not an overture. It's the thing. Yeah. The okay. nodding is not going to work well in the podcast. Oh, right. Oh, nodding? <laughs> yes. He's nodding and wearing a red shirt. I believe that part of, and and I don't, I don't maybe creepy is too harsh. I don't, I'm not sure. It's just like foreign or alien or unfamiliar. The girls are pretty used to guys are trying to get sexual favors out of them and so if you are besotted with some girl that you've just met but you have no intention of getting naked in the foreseeable future because you're trying to do something else first they don't get it they may be guard up or not in the mood for people who are trying to be sexually aggressive but the big question is well what do you want then and when what you want is all the things that women say they want from guys they've already had sex with like I want to talk and I want to be valued and have him listen to me and listen to my problems. I think a lot of what I'm doing is I didn't try to have sex with them and I'm kind of doing all the being friends with them after you would normally have done that, having skipped that part. And they assume, oh, well, that's not part of the, the dynamic. And I think that over and over again, this has actually been held against me, especially when you're not dealing with religious girls, not that religious girls are all incredibly chaste and abstinent, but I think it's a misread. I'm assuming that sex is not something we're going to be doing this week. So what are we going to be doing? Well, a whole lot of talking and hanging out and all that kind of stuff. And they treat me like a girlfriend or a gay best friend or something because they don't know 
how to behave in that. That sounds pretty accurate. Yeah, like the the last girlfriend I had before um, Bethany, everybody in the bar called her tits, but I didn't know that. But I never noticed, like it, because when we met, her personality was was fantastic. Like, and we started talking, and we talked for like five hours straight. And uh, I think the biggest thing we connected on was our love for Fonzie. From Fonzie. <laughs> It turned out she had a box that was a Fonzie box that she kept everything in. And I was all into it at the time. And uh, anyways, it blew up. Like, and, and I was, I started dating her for two weeks. She, we got some kissing and, and I was like, Hey, I'm not going to um, take, we're not going to take this any, I'm not going to go all the way with this um, until, you know, unless you know, I get married or something. And I was straight up front. And uh, she's like, what? She could not understand it. And I remember the last night I saw her, we had spooned all night, uh, freaking out my family. It would cause Karen to call up. Bethany was like, if you're going for Michael, you better go for him now because he's got yeah. a girlfriend. He's spooning a girl. With with uh, with this, the, the video game Earthworm Jim stuck on level five, and it was repeating the Moonlight Sonata because that's what's playing on it, but with the computer like Moonlight Sonata over and over and over again while we, we slept through the whole night. And it was, to me, it was just this fantastic experience because I love the Moonlight Sonata. It went over and over. I never got tired of it. And uh, the next day she went and checked herself into a mental institution. And uh, I didn't see her again until like two two years ago. I was right. in mechanics for checking out at a grocery store. And there she was across the counter. like, Mike? Like, Lisa? Uh, I think I met her. Maybe not. But um there's been a, an inordinate number of busty leases that I've met in my life. None of them were Mona, but they were leases. <laughs> I ran this by Evan while feeling a bit sexist. Men aren't supposed to talk about women as a whole, especially not without their permission and guidance. We were kind of skirting around the idea that generally men complain about being rejected when they approach women, and women complain about not being approached to begin with. That's weird. In exactly the same way that if you believe that men always want more sex than you want and can't say no to sex, and then you decide to go on a date with a guy and he says no to you when you offer sex or hint at sex, a lot of women deal with that very poorly. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I'm trying to, I'm seeing that connection, but I think there's some important differences there too, right? I mean, sexually, women have, historically evolutionarily had the, the they're the they're the choosers they select and so you're telling them you don't get to select right you don't get to select me right um i mean i don't it, it's anybody's guess how deep i can go in your sub you know in your in your psyche mm -hmm. <laughs> how, how hard that might hit you because it's 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 not just you're not hitting them with i'm not in the mood tonight you're hitting them with you're unappealing Right. Like that's what they're, maybe you're not saying that. I'm sure you're not, I, I'm hoping you're not. you're not saying that, you're not. but, but, but that might be what they're hearing that it might go very deep. The way I worded and, it in the podcast that I don't think you would have heard yet mm -hmm. is a lot of women have tried to change my religion. <laughs> and when they can't, it's like you're cheating on them with Jesus. Hmm. That's interesting that they, they, because they don't want to be, stopped right like and i, I again I'm, I'm trying not to it sounds sexist but but and i, I struggle yeah, well, with how to word it i struggle with how to word it but my impression as a guy who said no to a bunch of women is that they don't feel like 
the, this sounds sexist to me. It felt like that they needed to have their hooks into me sexually before they felt like they had a handle on me. And so long as they didn't have that over me, they felt like they didn't have a grip on me and they didn't know how to deal with me. And I was too unmanageable. Mm-hmm. Once they had me that I, that what I wanted was sex and they could say yes or no, they felt like they had power. And mm-hmm. until, so, and, and if you're trying to have a, a preliminary romantic relationship and, I, and that's not how I roll, they don't know how to get power if they can't use mm-hmm. sexual power. And that sounds sexist. It sounds sexist. On the other hand, all of your experiences are with women. Yes. Um, right. So like, that's like, you only have that to draw from. Exactly. But, but think of it less like that and more like, if you're all, a guy. All, all of the men who I said no, no to sex with, I didn't want to have sex with them ever anyway. Yeah. And they probably weren't that surprised. Um, Hopefully. And so, but I mean, think about it, guys, we get rejected. Like every guy I know, even guys who are successful, romantically sexually etc have been rejected a bunch of times you know i i think that we've we figured out these these standard if you want to call them gender roles you can but if you want to just say the stereotype whatever you want to call it is that guys ask right guys ask i mean you had this on your podcast before where you know there's a couple of stories of of a guy wouldn't make a move until finally the woman made the move yeah. And, you know, it's, 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 it's funny, you know, we, we, we laugh about it. And I think we can laugh about it. That's okay. But I don't know how many women feel like they've been rejected a lot of times. Um, every guy I know is but some guys I know were rejected by their girlfriends. And they pursued them anyway, you know, like, they, they, yeah. they you know, they and then, that, and then that's the problem with, of course, consent is really important. We mm-hmm. We all agree with that. Mm-hmm. But the idea that a guy can be sexually su- successful, quote unquote, by taking no as no forever, as soon as you hear it, mm-hmm. that's not very practical. A lot of times to ever make it work, you have to ask again in future. I'm not trying to draw a question about consent. You know, yeah. woman says, go away from me. You should go away. Like I'm yes, I'm on board of with course, that. Of course. All reasonable people, as far as I'm concerned, are on board with that. What I am saying is sometimes you'll be at a party and you'll be talking to a couple and they'll be telling you their story of how they met or how they got together. Yeah. And somewhere in there, he went for it and she didn't really, you know, she didn't really go for it at first. Maybe she wasn't interested in him for whatever reason. And, and then they end up together later. I've heard that so many times. Okay, good. And see, I've heard it too. And here's what I've noticed. The women telling these stories or having these stories told by their partner, if they're sitting there, right? Like the two of them are talking about it together. They love the part where they rejected the guy. Oh, yeah. And and he didn't, and he didn't, I don't want to say he didn't go away, but that he was still interested in her despite the rejection. Yeah. I think, I think rejecting a woman hits harder socially. Um, a man rejecting a woman, it, it's harder for her to deal with. And I think, I think one reason is that she doesn't have as much experience with it. And I'm back to this idea, not that women aren't out there trying to play their cards. It's more like guys are just, you know, (laughs) I don't want to say trigger happy. Maybe that's the the right word. The the language they choose is different across genders. And so guys talk about being rejected. Mm -hmm. Women talk about not being approached and being ignored. Right. And that's really different. So the guys are trying a lot and they either get rejected without being considered 
or being given a little addition and then thank you, we'll call you. And then they, they don't. So the guy, the complaint from guys is being rejected when they try and the complaint from women, the way that they term it, I'm not doing this for them. I'm just listening to them. I've talked to a lot of women in my life. They're complaining about being invisible. They're complaining about no one looked at me. They're complaining about no one came and talked to me. No one noticed me. All the language pretty much comes down to no one looked at me like that. Mm -hmm. And so as much as there is. You sometimes hear them say, I didn't feel seen. Yes. Right? This is a very common mm-hmm. phrase. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of complaint about the male gaze. And I'm hearing just as much complaint if it's absent when they want it as if it's there when they don't want it. Many people I know have been on their way to middle age, having a few long-term relationships and also a few kids. My own path has been rather stupider and harder to explain. Conventional wisdom is that I haven't succeeded in these areas because I'm too weird or too boring or I've been too picky or not picky enough or that I've just plain repeatedly attempted in the words of a friend to try to do something that wasn't ever going to work in ways that were never going to work with someone who wasn't ever going to work. Have I learned anything? I guess we'll see. One thing is certain. I've had plenty of time to uninterruptedly think about all of this over the years. And a common narrative that you'll hear is from feminists or from progressives is that the sexual revolution was a great idea and it was a way of counteracting centuries of oppressive patriarchal repression. And the problem is just that we haven't like fully implemented it. As discussed in previous episodes, modern feminists are sharply divided and in vitriolic disagreement about trans rights and gender, with gender-affirming progressive feminists on the one side saying it's the surest sign of progress to believe that women can have penises, and trans-exclusionary radical feminists, or TERFs, on the other, saying, as Germaine Greer put it, just having your dick lopped off doesn't make you the same thing I've been since birth, and that it's not progress to think that it does. As with gender, there is a similar, hotly contested feminist battleground as to sexual activity, particularly as it pertains to hookup culture. The one side, dubbing itself sex-positive feminism, seeks to demystify sex, view it as nothing special, remove it from being treated any differently from any other ordinary daily activity whatsoever, except in the case of rape, or bosses at work, or, or children or if there's any movement at all toward it being any easier for men to acquire or any cheaper or less necessary to men. To this way of thinking, all that remains is for women to throw off the last remaining hang-ups they have about indiscriminate casual sex to stop slut-shaming one another and retool society entirely so it won't make them feel anything bad about living a life of routine promiscuity. Just that. The other side, called by the self-labeled sex-positive feminists, sex-negative feminists, argues that, as with gender, there are inherent sex differences built into men and women, not just physical and chemical, but psychological and instinctual, and that once the birth control pill became readily available, women were expected to suddenly approach and feel about sex the exact same way men always had that now they could have sex without having babies, so they were also supposed to be able to have sex without having feelings either, with as much alcohol as it took to ward off the possibility of taking sex personally, or finding anything much the porn-tutored guys wanted them to do, disgusting or demeaning. That the social climate had changed because of the technology, but that this didn't signal an instant change in what would actually make women happy. 
It would be so much simpler if everyone were gay, but most people just aren't. And for those of us who aren't, there's a whole second sex out there to deal with, one that seems, on average, to be a bit different in a few different ways. Louise Perry, a liberal accused of being a sex-negative feminist, argues that besides that priority of personal freedom, women, and in fact society itself, also needs patience, drive, ingenuity, and a lot of sexual restraint, the latter mainly from men, because of men being statistically more likely to be stronger, while also being more frequently interested in coitus than many of the women in their orbits. Louise notes that if men, on average, run significantly faster and longer distances than women can, and have significantly greater grappling and gripping strength, and tend to be bigger and weigh more, and tend to be horny most of the time, that them exercising restraint is of absolutely vital importance to women. Perry argues that, yes, women need men to hold back unless there is consent, but also that alpha widow women may reach their middle 30s and realize that they were trying to force themselves to please men in their approach to sexual behavior that whole time. This, as to to whom and how often they mustered up consent, and consent for what specifically, and never having ever had an orgasm with a man, nor a romantic relationship that lasted, and no kids on the way either. Perry says they might well have made different choices in their 20s if they'd known then what they know now, of having more personal freedom than they know what to do with, and that's about it. An empty boat cut adrift is free. Doesn't mean it's going to end up anywhere good, or get anywhere very quickly. I can tell you that far, far, far too many Christian women confiding in me in my capacity for informal free counselor, priest confessor, and straight gay best friend to them have admitted, even into their 40s, that they have never once had an orgasm of any kind ever. This despite some of them having had a decade of man-style promiscuous sex or of being married. Many want to blame it on religious shame as to sexual feelings, and I don't know if I can argue with that 100%. For young Christian guys, too, you can't always instantly change a lifetime of deeply ingrained no to an enthusiastic, single-minded yes on demand, even though we've been periodically having orgasms in our sleep since we were like 12 or whatever age you thought I should have said there. Suffice it to say, the impression many Christian homes and ardent feminists alike seemed to be giving us young guys back in the day was that we teenage boys really needed notes of permission from our mothers and or the girls in our heads before having a boner. And we were, on average, having 10 or 15 of those a day, many of them while we were awake, some of them while we were at school, and very grateful to have a knapsack with us. So why do people fail to end up with someone? In addition to everything already gone into, there's attachment theory. Attachment theory, postulated in the 50s by John Bowlby, presents the idea that people approach relationships and potential romantic partners in one of three or four ways, depending on how you count. At the one extreme are avoidance, who may seek relationships or want them just like most people do, but really, when faced with a relationship that looks like it might really work, find themselves cutting it off or fleeing it, doing anything at all to get out of it, because ultimately, they can't really open up or properly connect. Avoidance come in people who think they're awesome just the way they are, inside and out, but can't open up to others, so often avoid strong connections. And people who think they're absolutely horrible inside and out, 
worth nothing at all, and can't open up to others, yet are always trying to draw people to them, only to flee them and push them away and complain of clinginess or being smothered when things get too intimate. In the middle is the secure attachment side, the sweet spot where you want to be, where you easily and unthinkingly, confidently form attachments to others whenever it suits you. At the other extreme end from the two kinds of avoidance are neurotic or anxious attachment-style people who always fear relationships ending, so even when just starting one or in one that's going well are suspicious or nervous and generally do not trust themselves, the other person, God, or fate to land this thing properly. But white-knuckled, they keep trying. Therapists note smugly that people who are avoidance often end up interacting primarily with anxious folks. It's kind of a balanced misery that doesn't ask anything of them that they can't deliver. The one is afraid the other will leave and they get to be right. The other is going to leave, if things start working out at all, that is, because they're going to need to if they do. Unhelpfully, Bowlby claims that these attachment styles are formed in childhood, with one's early forming of connections, or lack of them, to parents, family, and friends, and that they are immutable. In other words, you can't dramatically change your root nature, but you can understand patterns that develop and pursue deep-seated habits less or more consciously. I'm sure if he knew me and hadn't died 30 years ago, Bowlby would claim that I grew up with two parents and a bunch of relatives who were too wrapped up in their own stuff to have deep, rich, secure attachments to other people, given their own traumatic and chaotic childhoods, with an anxious mother trying to connect with a distant, closed husband, repeatedly pushing her away throughout their marriage. And so for me, when I seek connections that feel like home, ones that are going to be familiar to me, they are the opposite extreme from those sought out by people who grew up in warm, huggy, teasing, homeschool homes filled with family pet names for one another and continual fond interaction. That stuff gives me hives. Seems like it comes from a different planet. I am going to connect most comfortably with people who are distant and who actually disengage or push people away when warmer, closer, more intimate emotional bonds are attempted. And that stuff just makes me more interested and makes women seem that much more worth chasing. My parents had been reading Benjamin Spock and listening to people like their parents who told them to let us cry as much as possible as babies rather than touching or holding or otherwise spoiling us. Seeing that other parents were giving their kids tiny allowances of money to teach their kids to save and spend money, my dad tried it briefly, but never felt like we deserved any money from him, given how poorly and how little we little folks did chores, so he just stopped giving it to us without telling us. The weeks went by and the allowance kept not happening. Assuming at first that he'd forgotten, I, and this must have been around age eight, kept track on my calendar of missed allowance days totaled that outstanding amount, and after two months, reminded Dad of his debt owing. It was 1978. I had Star Wars figures to buy. You can imagine how angry his response was. Blew right up. How dare I? To me, it was a betrayal of an agreement, a gentleman's arrangement between us. To him, it was sheer unmitigated gall on my part, though he didn't know most of those words that I just said there. And he also forbid outright the buying of any more Star Wars dolls, as he called them, for the rest of my childhood. My parents were used to making their points with a wooden paddle when we kids wanted to object to anything, teaching us that there was no negotiating with power or advocating for oneself or one's rights. We had mercy sometimes, but not rights. 
they ended up raising people who grew up to feel like they're a different species in a different culture on a different planet when it's time for people to wear matching sweaters, smile and sing songs with their arms over each other's shoulders, all in perfect unison, following the PowerPoint slides and looking forward to s'mores and scrabble later. I'm enough like my mom that I'm sure Bowlby would say, on a deep level, a woman who feels like home to me is one who, like my dad, flees commitment, intimacy, opening up, and forming bonds, treating anyone trying to engage in that stuff as some kind of confusing, weird, creepy pervert, and that I am never going to feel like home to women who grew up with secure emotional and social attachments, and that in adult life I was going to timidly reach out to various women I found attractive, only for them to recognize an insecure attachment style written all over me, to experience and intuit me, even if I never once displayed a flicker of neediness or clinginess, as fearful about the long-term success of my forming secure attachments deep down. I'm sure Bowlby would be unsurprised to see me feeling very uncomfortable in a room filled with shiny, happy people, noticing and going over to the complicated closed person, deep in thought, wondering what's up with that puzzle box of a human being and how to make them open up to me, feeling fantastic if I've gotten them to confide their story in me, getting pushed away if they felt we'd grown closer from that interaction. F*** off, John Bowlby. When I was speaking with Emily from England, I was surprised to find she was completely familiar with John Bowlby, but Emily thinks attachment styles can be changed. And everyone's attachment style is brought with them from childhood through to their adulthood. But mm-hmm. you can change your attachment styles. Me, for example, I am an anxious attachment style. When I get into a relationship, and not only that, I have childhood trauma. My trauma response is fawn. I people please. I will do. I will say anything for an easy life because I don't want conflict. I don't want to have to argue. I will just let people walk all over me. And being in that fawn trauma response, I could be misconstrued as being easygoing, really laid back. Well, actually, I'm not. It's just how I deal with it. I go, do you know what? Yes. 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 That's fine. That's fine. That's fine. With the anxious attachment and having the fawn trauma response there as well any relationship that I get into if I get an ounce of someone pulling away I will then want to grab the hold of them and pull them back in right because I I have a fear of abandonment and rejection mm-hmm. and I don't want them if I feel like they're just about even if like I get this slight instinct that I think they're going to be leaving I will completely melt down cry, be all anxious, go into a victim mentality and probably be overreacting and would not look at it rationally at all with my ex-partner. He would want to run away mm-hmm. and he would want to have space because he has got a fear of abandonment as well. So you have this push and pull dynamic um, all the time. But when it comes to infidelity, it won't matter what attachment style you are. It will depend on your upbringing as a child and what events and circumstances surrounded you as a child from your early childhood into teens and potentially any really traumatic relationships in your younger adulthood as well. Anson had things to say 
but the effect he feels his parents' relationship had on his own. I think that my mother had a deep and abiding mistrust of men. Um, I think that that influenced how she interacted with my father. Um, I think she loved him, and I think he loved her, but I, I don't think that they ever had a healthy relationship. I, I, I don't. And God forbid, I mean, my, my mother, for her to do counseling was unthinkable. I mean, mm. she, she did for a period of time, but I think that she was probably the worst type of, of patient or counselee in that she was completely opposed to the idea, yeah. only doing it because she you know, felt she had to because her doctor or someone you know, it's kind of forcing it upon her. But, um, and, and that said, I mean, she, she also kind of simultaneously, although she would never use the term mental health issue, she would, you know, privately, she would acknowledge, you know, I, I saw horrible things as a child, things that I, that I don't ever feel comfortable to, re- to repeat. Mm-hmm. And they've impacted my life in awful ways, you know? So, um, I think that my my dad was kind of a nominal Christian. He was devoted to going to church. I don't know how robust his theology was. I think he tried to have a Christian marriage. I think my mother wanted that, but but didn't know what that meant. And I think that um, my father probably, I mean, I think at some point he he may have felt like, you know, I maybe I just bit off more than I can chew. Um, you know, she, she's kind of beyond my help. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so, to, you know, as far as my own marriage, I think my own marriage kind of mirrored that in a lot of ways. I, I don't, I think that there were a lot of issues that both of us had as young people, um, from previous relationships, from our upbringing that, that were never, ever intelligently discussed, or if they were discussed, it was so cursory. It was like, oh yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, I prayed about that. God has provided healing in that area. Yep. Yep. You know, we love each other. Yes. Let's, you know, let's have this wonderful life. But, um, after my ex and I split and I I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was within that first several months, probably within the first eight months, because I remember where I was living at the time. And I, I just, uh, I used to do these light workouts in the room, like in my bedroom, just renting a room from friends. And so I think I was like doing push-ups or something and, and I just, I was thinking about my mom and like, I just was horrified because I realized I was like, my marriage was very much like my parents, you know, and, and my, my ex is very much like my mother in some ways. Like I hadn't ever seen it before. I mean, I, I'd seen some, what I thought were kind of cursory personality, you know, similarities, but. Um, I just, you know, I, I just, I said, wow, like I'm, I'm living the trope, you know, the stereotype. That's tough. And, and yeah. And, and so I, all of a sudden, you know, it was, it was intensely painful, disappointing, but also all of a sudden I had this tremendous amount of grace for my father, whom I, I'd been very harsh with, very angry with him because I felt that he mistreated my mother, you know, because mm-hmm. she had this whole narrative about him. I think she she acknowledged him as a good man, but but she didn't think he was a good husband. Um, and in fact, I mean, 
if she were alive today, I would, I would probably, uh, you know, alive and, and not in the throes of dementia, I would probably really challenge her on some of those views mm-hmm. that she had. Um, and I think, and frankly, I think that they're very common views. I think that sometimes um, we, we, both men and women easily succumb to these, well, you know how women are, or you know how men are, right? And then, and then everything that your spouse does is through that lens. And so you become implacable. There's no pleasing you if, if you assume that every good deed has an, you know, as an ulterior motive behind it. So I'm telling him, do you know what? You can't give me what I want. I am anxious. I can be a little bit avoidant in some areas, um, but predominantly I'm anxious. Same here. But unlike uh, Bowlby, the guy who created the theory, you believe that you can change your style over time. You can change your style. And I think it will depend on the experiences you go through. But I'm definitely anxious. Mm -hmm. I need reassurance. I need validation. I need those. I need good communication. So, yeah, we're all we're all just kind of (laughs) on a bad day. I feel like, geez, we're we're all we're just doomed, you know, God help us. We're, we're, we're all pieces of shit. Every one of us. What I take from all this, what I've seen is how very often people end up in these stupid little dances where the one is more afraid the other will leave them than as usual. And the other is more likely to leave the person than as usual. Secure folks end up with secure folks. The rest of us are a train wreck. The image I pulled from childhood to express it was Lucy and Charlie Brown with the football. Lucy keeps trying to convince Charlie Brown to throw himself wholeheartedly into running at the football to kick it, but she is going to pull it away at the last minute so he falls on his ass every time. She must think I'm the most stupid person alive. Come on, Charlie Brown. I'll hold the ball and you kick it. Hold it? You'll pull it away and I'll land flat on my and kill myself. But Charlie Brown, it's Thanksgiving. And he continues hanging around with her and falling for it. And she still can't stand to let him have his moment, not even once. As a young child, I related far too much to Charlie Brown and Eeyore. It should come as no surprise that I'm anxious and fearful about failing to connect to begin with or of connecting briefly with a girl only to have the nightmare scenario take place with her getting me all trusting and optimistic and then pushing me away or generally fleeing the scene. In other words, rejection. In my lifetime, I have met the girl of my dreams over and over, the girl able and willing to make that nightmare come true, to treat me as my father treated my mother because of how they grew up and who they were, to push me away when I'm feeling open and loving and feeling safer and fonder of me when I'm distant and annoyed. I'd take it personally, only I can't help but notice how many guys fail to connect with those same women, unable to form lasting, trusting relationships with them either. And the women themselves will, in uncharacteristically open moments, say, I push people away, usually right before they do that again. And the scary thing is, in the very rare event that an anxious woman has pursued me, scared of it not working out, I have sometimes found myself shutting down, closing her out, and pushing her away. Rather than it allowing me to be secure, it simply pushes me to switch roles from being how I saw my mother be to being how I saw my dad be. 
Pickup artist douchebag guys recommend negging out of reach attractive women you're hitting on, giving them subtle or unsubtle negative comments to knock them down in confidence to the point at which they'll be more open to interest from someone of your status. I think this may also be a way of making insecure attachment avoidant dismissive types of women who are beautiful and apt to get more attention than they're comfortable with feel more like home than compliments alone would ever make them. Anyway, that's what little I know about attachment theory. I hope you've found it terribly helpful. I know I haven't. Let's look in the wicked mailbag. Raised in the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church, like me, Lloyd agrees about not being set up to know how to handle dating, Christian girls or otherwise. He writes, Absolutely, I am clueless regarding dating. As to dating people from work, Steph writes, Never mix business with pleasure. That sounds very wise, but experts have noted that since time immemorial, when men and women have worked together, they sometimes have ended up together together. If you work with someone, it's actually a pretty great way to get to know them and how well you work together. So long as there's not a big power differential, that just might end up well. But we are no longer feeling it's as okay to do that kind of thing anymore in our post-hashtag-me-too era with predictable results. More of us are alone than ever before, despite working with a bunch of single people. A day later, Steph adds, However... I should note my parents met through work. Many people started dating when they were teenagers, dating people they saw every day at high school and at their part-time jobs. Workplace romances certainly start in the teenage years for many people. Hard to expect teens to grasp the idea that it's very, very wrong to date people at work when you go to school and work with a bunch of teens your age in a small town where those are pretty much all of the teens your age. Evan remembers being annoyed when guys at high school started dropping the my girlfriend line into daily conversation. I don't know how many times in my high school days there'd be some guy go, well, my girlfriend and and like we all knew her. So I'd yeah. say, like, say her name. Yeah. <laughs> say, say, say Taylor. You know, say like we all yeah. know it. And it's because, you know, he's flaunting it as a status symbol and it's not yes. slick at all. With, with women, it's a way of getting rid of interested guys. So I can't tell you yeah. how often in my life. I, I start talking to, I talk to people a lot when I can. And so you'll be talking to a checkout person, like you're at the butchers or the bakers or the candlestick makers, and there's a cute woman working and you start having this conversation and you realize that you, you've talked for quite a while and it's going really well. And mm -hmm. she kind of says, oh, that's what my boyfriend says, or that's what my husband yeah. says. And, and she's saying that to warn you, to let you know that there's a guy. And that that's one of those not terribly awkward, but just that that's that's just how you communicate between the genders. Back to what we're saying about marriage. Um, Hang on. I want to ask you about all those visits you're making to the candlestick maker. I didn't realize you were a big connoisseur of candlesticks. Well, we know that uh, the last name Chandler um, comes from uh, people who used to make candles. Oh, I the didn't same, know that. In the same way that Cooper's made barrels. Um, I did know that one, but I didn't know Chandler's made made candles. Very cool. Chandler Bing, not really sure. There was uh, 
uh, a girl a couple years behind me in school. So I was in grade 12. She was in grade 10. And she had this thing going on with this guy. He was older than her and she was really excited about it. He's a year older than her. So it wasn't that weird. I'm not, it was not a weird age thing, but he was older than her. And she was, you know, excited to be getting the attention of an older guy and whatever. And, um, and we'll call her, we'll call her Kristen. And Kristen said to me, Oh no, like there's this problem. I don't know why she was talking to me about it. That's, that's why I love the story so much. She said, and here's what he did wrong. He said, you're hot. Like that's, he was trying to hit on her and he says, you're yeah. hot. Yeah. And she was like devastated by this. And I said, Kristen, like, don't worry about it. You're, you're not hot. Like, don't, that's totally fine. You're not. And she goes, what? Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> what, what did you just say? And I was simply trying to make the point, like, I don't think he's trying to insult you by saying that. Mm -hmm. um, and now that I'm older, if to go back, I would say, it sounds like this guy has n no game, so to speak. This guy's yes. not really playing the right cards here, but he's not mean. He's not trying to demean you. He's just, he's just an idiot. He's just <laughs> 16 years old and stupid, right? Like, yeah. Um, and, uh, but it was interesting to me that even at that age, that's a pretty young age to be, unhappy about the compliment you received that you yeah. didn't want. Courtney writes, I clearly remained throughout my 20s, usually oblivious when I was getting hit on, to the point that while working at a trade show, I was asked by a man who my older sales rep friend said was interested in me, though I didn't believe him, if I was game to get out of here and go someplace else. And I said, sure, and then was surprised that he wanted to go up to his room. My very embarrassed, well, I wasn't thinking of that, got me dismissed as quickly as he was able. I struggled to remember how I could have been so clueless. I put off a very strong vibe of not interested in relationships at my work, and that quickly earned me the role of best friend to some of the guys, and girls too, who would confide their relationship issues to me. I was safe, not a threat, to either side. The no-sex line held, even when I had my first couple of meeting boyfriends, though it came closer to being crossed than ever before. Then I ended up engaged and married, still a virgin. One of my bridesmaids was a friend from work, and when she discovered I was still a virgin, she was very surprised and couldn't wait to find out how things went after we got married. It wasn't easy. If you spend the first 20-plus years of your life telling yourself that sex is wicked and wrong, just getting to the honeymoon isn't enough to flip that switch. You subconsciously clench things shut that should never be opened, and despite perfectly working hormones, my body took a very, very long time to respond. Things weren't easy until after my first child was born. Even six or seven years into our marriage, there were still times we'd look at each other and say, are we really allowed to do this? We couldn't believe the feelings of wrongness were still there, but they were. My bridesmaid friend asked about six months into our marriage how things were going and couldn't understand why we weren't exactly swinging from the chandeliers, as she put it. It was hard to explain to her. I have no regrets at holding on to my virginity, and I'm very thankful that I did, not because I never got branded with the scarlet letter, but because I didn't have comparisons going on in my mind when I was with my husband for the first time. I would have been disappointed in myself if I'd given that to someone else and then didn't have the newness of it after getting married. I no longer see it as the worst sin ever or something that God would hold against me. I'm just glad I didn't. As far as admitting I'm a sexual being and some might find me attractive, I still struggle with compliments of any kind from any male anywhere. While I take some internal delight in being noticed by other men, I would never let on or flirt, not just because I'm still happily married, 
But because it's still labeled as wrong in my head to see myself as attractive, my brain still tells me that's pride. My body isn't to be flaunted in any way, called attention to, or presented as desirable. This experience of being seen as not a player in the game, and therefore a neutral party everyone could confide in without expecting any moves to be made, certainly resonates with me. More on that later. Like I said in the previous episode, I'm terrible about flirting. Actually, this comes in handy because when inappropriately younger women who confide in me that their boyfriend is cheating on them or who are in love with a brethren guy whose assembly has forbidden him speaking to her so he isn't or who want me to tell them if I think their husband is being too controlling, when these things just keep on happening to me, I am really, really good at not flirting because that's not what's required at that point. And I certainly wasn't supposed to flirt with worldly women, like the ones I worked with all night long in high tech in the 90s. I have very vivid memories of Bible conferences because that's where we saw the girls. And what there was a very obvious uh, little game going on. The adults were doing their own thing, but the teenage girls were dressed to the nines. Like they were, they were fixed up like way more than usual. And they were clumped up in groups of girls. And the guys did not make much of an effort to dress up at all. And I think rightly so. I don't think that it got them anything like the kind of attention that the girls would get. So the the girls were dressing up like that and wanting to be seen and were very disappointed that they weren't getting seen. And the guys were looking and the girls weren't looking. The guys were looking. That's what, That was the roles. And the guys were not talking to them. So the girls were frustrated that they weren't being seen and they weren't being approached. And the guys were frustrated that either they were unable to go and talk to the girls who were in an intimidating pack, or Mm -hmm. um, if they did go and talk, they might feel that, oh, I wasn't the one that they wanted to talk to them. Mm -hmm. But it didn't work. Uh, On most levels, it it was a very non-working system. So... Yeah, maybe it'd be worth it to try to think about why that's happening, right? Why, why, why do women travel in packs? Well, my uncle, my uncle is a romantic, and so he, you know, obviously not not a blood relative there with that comment, but he uh, he would look with frustration and say, "Why, why aren't the guys like talking to all? The, look at these pretty girls. Why aren't you talking to them all?" He wanted to see more action going on as a, mm-hmm. as a you know a non creepy adult. He thought that's the fun of it. That's that's what should be happening. And it right. wasn't happening. So the girls were not subtle uh, in, in the, their display. And the guys were, I don't know, actually. I, I know that it, it seemed like it was too risky. because mm-hmm. It's like, what are the odds that I'm going to talk to the girl I most like the look of? What are the odds that she's also going to hope that I'm the one that talks to her? That That doesn't seem like the odds are in my favor. Yeah, exactly. And and I, I suppose maybe that's why they clump up, you know. If 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 you go off, if you go off by yourself, now mm-hmm. any guy can approach you. There's there's no deterrent, and yeah. the guy who approaches you might not be the guy that you're in. That and the you're the really dysfunctional approach was that they would clump up in a circle, so that be this big circle of girls talking, which would mean that you'd see their backs, which as appealing as that might look, uh, they they would they would not be very approachable because they actually have their back turned to you and their shoulder to shoulder. And I mentioned in a previous episode how much it made me laugh that Michael Vetter marched up like he was a drill sergeant and thrust himself into the middle 
phallically in the middle of this ring of of girls in in their frilly dresses and just began marching in a circle inside their circle and they loved him because they knew they wanted something they didn't nothing was happening and they were bored and he did that and they mm-hmm. just were michael um has always been really good at everyone's doing what everyone does no one likes what's happening i'm doing something completely random and people are always delighted they don't attribute malice to it or anything they just like having things sh- shaken up a little bit megan has more to share about having had an illicit work affair with a plymouth brethren christian church cult member she was working with I mean, I joined this job um, and I didn't have a clue that any of this happened or cults or anything. It all just seemed silly to me. The only sort of cult I would think of is like the KKK or something. And that was so extreme and not in this country, you know. And to then work for one and then become in love with someone from it um and then be so wrapped up in it to know like all the rules and what's happened it has really like changed my life but just to become like more aware that this sort of stuff goes on and people live this way and like the hold it has over people and the fear it honestly it makes me sad because like there's a whole life out here in the outside that so many people are never going to experience and it's like there's so much joy and it doesn't all have to be fear. And I kind of wish that they would know that. He would come over until like from 12 o'clock um, at night till uh, 5 a.m. And then we'd go to work. And then we'd have a day in between to sleep. Um, and it, I got to the point that I was just like, we can't keep doing this. We're both tired. All of the petrol it takes to, because he lives an hour away from me. Um, and I was just like, come on, we can't keep doing this. We need to sort of slow down. But he was just like, no, it's not really your choice here. It's my petrol. It's my time. It's my sleep. So I'm coming over. But yeah, it did kind of lead to some arguments in, in that way. If you can get them to smile, you're probably doing the right thing. Um, but in terms of your methods, um, smiling, you got in trouble for that. Yeah. Um, so um, the boss at... Um, at our job well we were like we were messaging on microsoft teams to begin with and we kept getting told off for that and basically he would say to harry um you don't need her to do your job so i don't know why you're messaging all of the time um it was obvious because we sat next to each other so like one of us would be typing and then stop and then it would be the other one um but when we then come off of that and went on to whatsapp we didn't really message during work anymore uh but we sat next to each other so there was a coy smile here and there um, and the boss ended up seeing and told me off for it because my smile was too distracting and I shouldn't be doing that. But um, Harry said he thinks it's because I smiled at him in a different way to everyone else and that kind of made it obvious. It's interesting because as brethren leaders, their hope is to keep the two of you apart. And in fact, what they do is make you feel extra confident about the nuclear strength of your smile and encourage you to message privately outside of the workplace. And this is a really bad idea if they're trying to stop relationships from happening. Yeah, definitely. Because that was a, a like crucial point, to be honest, because we were only talking during work hours. Mm-hmm. And it would only be like in the afternoon when we were both a bit bored. There's like two hours left to go. But then we were like, do you know what? Like, we're giving up on this. Let's go to WhatsApp. And suddenly it, we were talking all throughout the working day, all evening, into the night. So we 
had this time um, and got very close very quickly. So yeah, that was definitely a, a mistake on their part. The fact that we can chat into the night, even if we're in different towns nowadays, means that we can form very strong emotional bonds really quickly because of technology. Like if you had to be in the room with the person to make that conversation happen, it would take longer, it'd be harder. Yeah, definitely. We went from like just chatting maybe a few times a week to literally every minute of every day. Um, and the thing is, up until that point at work, we weren't we weren't really talking to each other. He, we're both like actually quite shy and we sat next to each other, but we just refused to talk to each other. It almost become like a running joke. But yeah, it would have definitely taken a lot longer to get to the point of where we are now if it was just in person. And of course, with this church being what it is, you would never have been allowed to date physically, like wait till after work and go to a coffee shop and sit and have a coffee. That's not allowed to him. No, it's not even really a courage to just talk to each other, actually. So even like just having a workplace friendship wasn't really allowed. But yeah, when you take out eating and drinking, there's not really much you can do casually with someone to get to know them. Because even at work, you couldn't eat at the same table at lunch. No, we would just sit at separate tables. It was just more okay if you were just sort of wandering and then just sit on a table on your own. Even if you're friends that you could sit with, where to sit. It was always a bit awkward. It's a brethren-owned business, which means that all the people in the brethren community eat at a separate table at lunchtime. Because they used to like serve lunch and things. So it's like they would encourage us to eat together, but not together because we all had to sit separately. Susan Isaacs had this to say about workplace romances. I think one of my most significant relationships was somebody I met at work. He was great. Um, I also got involved with a guy at grad school that was terrible. I think... Mm-hmm. Um, you know, don't poop where you eat. Um, I think it's one of those things is like, you better be really sure. Especially if like, there's a power differential. Mm -hmm. That's the big one. Yeah. Power differential, like self-disclose and don't, don't do it on a whim. Anson had this to say about dating people you work with. Uh, it happens. Um, yeah. Is it wise? No. Um, but could it ever work? It's understandable. I think, I think every, every workplace needs to devise a very uh, specific policy about it. <laughs> and, and, and because I'm against this sort of vir- virtual world that we live in, I, I think that there are actually, if we're completely honest, there are many times when a workplace romance should probably be encouraged. Right. As long as it's not a superior and that person's subordinate. The power differential is what makes it not fair. I didn't realise that my ex-boyfriend was ex-brethren until he told me about three or four days or meets in, really. Do you know what? Because he's been out 21 years, there was not a natural flow to his emotions, thinking about it. In one breath, he would be very closed off and very matter-of-fact in one sense. Mm -hmm. And then he would turn it, to another thing and then would be really loving and mm-hmm. really affectionate but I didn't recognize that maybe until now but I didn't think anything of it because he was just a friend talking up until like sort of more in depth with my experience I received the most loveliest and caring part 
of my ex-partner who showed me actually how a woman should be treated and how they should be cared for and how they should be respected. Do you think that there was like a traditional miss about him that was kind of charming that might have come from his upbringing? There was no mystery about him at all other than the fact that I did find it very, very interesting about his background. And I like people. I'm interested in people. I will talk for hours. But what I did like about him is he would follow through with whatever he was going to do. So if he said he was going to do something, he would go and do it. Mm -hmm. And he was old-fashioned. I mean, he's a 41-year-old man, nearly, and he still carried a hanky. That's old-fashioned. Right. But that is one thing that I loved about him. I, I absolutely did. And it shows a true gentleman. He was a gentleman in every single aspect until it came to him figuring out his emotions. Right. When he started to become extremely overwhelmed with life, I was cut off like a knife. And it went from morning texts to nothing. I've heard this from other you know, you're a, you're a worldly, I'm afraid to inform you, but I've mm-hmm. talked to other worldly women who have had this, that they're, they, they're dating someone who was raised brethren. They don't really know what that does. And they find the person has a bit of a charming, old fashioned, gentlemanly thing that they have. And there's something weird about their boundaries that they seem to open suddenly. It's almost like they don't have the usual hookup culture thing or the gradations, they, they don't know about that. They're very black and white from their upbringing. I'm the same. So that it's like you go from not talking to just telling everything. And once they're open emotionally, it all comes out and you're in. But just like we brethren people, like those of us who have been, you know, put under discipline or shut up or shunned or withdrawn from or whatever the term is in, in the different groups, we know firsthand what happens and our parents are the same that once you're on the wrong side you're just dead you're gone you don't exist and i think that's sort of what you're describing a little bit that just that ability to open up and then close up and there's nothing in the middle that is one of the most heartbreaking things to go through one minute you matter and the next minute you don't so have you heard jerry seinfeld's bit about how when you go on a date with the girl you talk up here because chinese food or italian would be great but as as the relationship goes on, your voice starts yes. to lower. You go back to who you are. I've written about this, that I don't think Canadian guys have a lot of game. And when I worked at Nortel, one of the things I noticed, I was working with a lot of Caribbean guys, guys from Africa too, and and I envied their game. And a lot of it was that, that I'd see nice. these enormous jacked black guys. Like these guys are terrifying to get on the wrong side of, right? They're, they look like they play in the NFL. Right. And they'd go to talk to a girl in person or on their phone, and their voice would go way up. You'd never heard them talk so high before because they're never going to talk to me like that. When they talk right. to me, they're like, hey, what's going on? So they're like, oh, I got to take this. And then they pick up their phone, they're like, I would never do that to you. And it's like, <laughs> that's a different voice that you just use for her. Mm-hmm. And and is it is it as simple as that's where her voice is? And so when you talk to her, you put your voice where her voice lives. Is that really what happens? The voice for an animal, for males, whether you're a lion or a gorilla or a bear or a cat or a dog, the voice is the thing that says, fuck off. And you, you got to listen to that voice or fight 
And so, you know, Twitter is always throwing out stats that I don't know if they're real stats. And one that I just saw this morning, someone claims that they have evidence that men are picking women based upon if they're pretty, which may have connections to that they look childlike or youthful and this kind of thing, but that women don't prioritize men who are pretty. They prioritize men who look like they could be intimidating to other men. Mm. And voice would come into that. I had a number of male friends who, when they heard themselves in a recording, they couldn't handle it. Like they had to record yeah. their voice for class or whatever it is. They couldn't handle it. I don't remember a parallel problem among my female colleagues where they, they'd hear their voice in a recording. I had one guy who would go to the length, like we had to submit this narrated story and he like every line of the narration he went through and you've done a lot of editing. You know how hard this would be. This would be, be this would be every time it was him speaking, he wanted to go in and edit it mm-hmm. so that it wasn't because in his, in his brain, that's not what he sounds like. I recorded a male student once and when he heard it back, he was very angry with me. And he asked me why I did that to his voice. Most people say, like, is that really my voice? And how embarrassing. But he wasn't quite right. And he believed that I had pranked him, that I had actually done something to his voice. So I assured him that I hadn't done anything. And that is what his voice sounds like when it's recorded. And he walked away, not sure what to say to me. And a few years later, murdered his grandmother with his bare hands. So oh, yeah. um, maybe a lucky escape for me. Mm-hmm. I wonder how well he'd do on the marshmallow test. That's a question for the ages. Yeah. yeah, probably not what we're going to get answered, but hey. No. Do you know what he used to do? This is funny, and I feel like it should be mentioned in, in the podcast. But um, basically, he had like a skylight window in his bedroom. So what he did, and I was at his house when he done this, he screwed in this like hook or something on, his, um, on the roof because he could climb up onto the roof. And then he had a rope. And what he would do at night, he'd wait for his whole family to go to bed um, and he'd like convince them to go to bed early. So sometimes it would be 11, sometimes they'd have to wait till one o'clock in the morning. And he'd climb out the window with the rope over his shoulder, attach it to the hook and he'd like abseil down the side of his house. British people use the German mountain climbing term abseil rather than the French word repel to describe people lowering themselves with ropes. And then climb over his neighbor's fence to get out, go in his car, and then drive an hour to come and see me. Well, because of how late it was, it usually only took like 45 minutes. Um, But that's what he had to do. And he would do that nearly every other day. And he'd stay at my house until five o'clock in the morning, even though we had work at seven. And he wouldn't sleep because he found it really tough to like see sleep over at people's houses and stuff. So we were always tired. Like he ended up using all of his annual leave because he would take half days just so he could sleep it off and then work from home and stuff. Um, but yeah, we did that for three whole months of like hardly sleeping. And that's how we would see each other. Crazy, right? I used to say to him like, come on, we can't keep doing this like it's not normal like we're not sleeping and stuff and he was like I need to see you I'm gonna do whatever I can he was like respectfully it's not you that's having to do it so let me just do my thing and I was like okay well if you want to be that tired and stuff sure um but he'd leave mine at five to get back before any of his family woke up and then he'd literally like maybe sleep for 30 minutes or an hour and then get ready to go to work and that is it I've kind of been unemployed for the last two months. Um, and why, I think I've been, and why are you unemployed? 
Oh, wow. Because I smile too nicely. <laughs> Had a brethren guy and yeah, so you lost yeah, your job. Yeah. You lost your job for smiling at a brethren guy. Well, if you want to even talk to him, you have to become a member. And we're not even aware of very, very many people who have become members who weren't born into it because that doesn't usually happen. You're trying to look into what it would take to be a member. And how's that going? Well, I've been trying to get a hold of an elder. Um, so I did manage because he's he is the um, director of the company I worked for. Um, and he's the elder of the church that I would join if I was able to. Um, so I did manage to get a hold of him. He was very, very shocked at our phone call of me saying, hey, I want to join to the point of being stunned to silence. He fired or sacked you. And your response is, can I join your church, please? And he's surprised. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> um, but he said, OK, I'll send you some info. Read for it. Get back to me. So the next time we spoke, he was overjoyed at the fact I was like, yeah, I'm still keen. Um, the stuff they sent me was all the stuff that's on the website. So it's nothing I didn't already knew or um, had already read. But he was honestly like, yeah, that's great. Like, I look forward to speaking to you again. I'll find out what the process is and I'll get back to you. Since then, um, I've not had any contact with him. I've tried to call him today and messaged him still. It's been like two weeks since we spoke. But um, obviously, between the last time we spoke and now, uh, Harry has been uh, shut up, I think is the, the yep. term. Mm -hmm. so so I don't know Harry's, if that is something. Harry's still made. living with his parents, but he's not allowed to go to church 10 times a week because he's defiled. And he has to live with his parents and not socialize with any of the brethren people. And he has to eat at a separate table from them. Yeah, that's right. But let's, let's recap. Um, you you want to join now in a normal church. Um, you could imagine if you wanted to join a Pentecostal church, what would you do first? Um, well, you can probably just walk in. Someone yeah. will be there and you can just yes. say, Hey, I want to join. And they'll be like, okay, cool. Come this Sunday. We love to have you. And that's it. You're a part of it. And you get to just watch it. And if there's anything more than that, there might be a meeting, but that's what it is. Whereas you are on the outside. So you are wanting to join. And even though he's a church elder, the thing that really struck me is he told you that he would have to find out what the process was for joining. Now, of all the things you would think a church elder would just know, you'd think the church elder would know how people join the church that he's the elder in, but he doesn't know. And he has to wait to find out what that process would be because he doesn't even know how people join his church that he's an elder of. And then this is very suspicious that you've been phoning and he's not getting right back to you. You didn't get an email. You used to work for him. You didn't get an email saying, um, I'm really busy, but I will phone you, you know, Tuesday or nothing that I would call courteous at all. I think you've been very forgiving of him of saying he's busy, but I don't care how busy he is because his job is to be a church elder. He goes, you know, 10 times a week. Um, I would think this is important, but he's not treating you like you're important. Yeah, the thing that's also kind of weird as well is that I sent a, um, if you go on the website, first of all, all of the social media links don't work. If you click on the Facebook link, it says there's no post, there's no page. 
So I sent a website inquiry to, to begin with to say, hey, I want to join because I didn't want to talk to anyone from my old job. I got sacked. Like, I don't want to call them up. Mm-hmm. And no one responded for two weeks. So that's when um, Harry's priest basically said, look, it's nothing to do with you. But if she wants to join, she'll contact um, the people that she used to work with. Um, leave it to her so he obviously told me that so that's the route I went down so then when he said I'll send you some more info he never actually sent me anything someone from the website used my inquiry to send me stuff that very same day so he obviously spoke to someone who is in charge of the website to say can you send this stuff to her and I don't think anyone would have got back to me from the website if it weren't for him saying that no and I mean most of us believe that they were a very secretive and private organization or cult. And that the only reason why they have a website and they have a name and all of this is because of pressure from the government. Because if they're accused of being a cult, which they are accused of being a cult, uh, the government doesn't want to give them tax-free status and this kind of thing. So uh, most of us believe, and we have no, we don't know, but we, we believe that things like the website are fake. They're, they're there for, for show they're up there to say, oh, no, we're not a cult. We've got a website and everything. There's no secrets with us. Did you get the feeling that maybe things are a little bit secret? Yeah, definitely. I don't think anyone monitors the website inquiries, and I don't think anyone would have got back to me. But also the additional info they sent me to see if I actually wanted to live this life was exactly the same as the website. There was nothing new there. So they just basically sent me a leaflet. Now, let's contrast what you know about what the rules are with what's in the leaflet. Do you know a bunch of things that weren't in the leaflet that you would actually have to do? Um, Yeah, so it basically just mentions that um, women are treated equally and have a fulfilling life and um, children have really good schooling. And yes, of course, we use technology. And no, we're not horrible to our neighbors we just don't eat with you that was it obviously it didn't say anything about the clothing for women it being different or a traditional lifestyle or it didn't go into really anything to be honest there's some little things like the fact that you're not supposed to use contraception and that you're not allowed to go to post-secondary education um so the reason why that there are now brethren schools if you had children they would have to go to a brethren school none of the teachers are going to be brethren. And the reason for that is because brethren people are not allowed to become so educated as to become a high school teacher. They're only allowed to take finance. If it's going to make money for the church, they're allowed to take finance or business courses and that's it. But yeah, I don't think they're honest. Uh, So with you, it's, it it would be an, an enormous thing for you to join. And yet they're not giving you any information really. So a lot of people would suggest that it's fake. Like they don't really want you to join. Yeah, I, because even like, I just said to the elder, like, I just want to know what the process is Mm -hmm. to join. I want to know what you need from me. What are the next steps? You know, so I can think about doing it. Um, It's not even a case of me saying I want to join like I, I like tomorrow. You know, it's just I want to know what the steps are. And they still haven't got back to me yet. And I mean, I can see why they're surprised, because basically, in sacking you, they're saying that they don't think you're good enough to work in their office. And you're saying, I would like to live the rest of my life in your community. 
and you know they don't have the level of respect and i mean this is based on smiling this is based upon dating which should be private right legally it's private it's not their business I was surprised when I worked with Catholics and they explained to me things like, you know, Catholics, uh, they would meet someone who's not a Catholic and they start a relationship and then they would start living together. And then they were often, it was because they were thinking about children. Once they start thinking about children, then they say, well, we should probably get married. And then of course, if you're Catholic, you can't marry someone who's not a Catholic. It doesn't matter. It's 2022. You can't do that. So if you're Catholic and you want to marry someone who's not Catholic, um, and have your your community recognize the marriage as a real marriage, the person has to convert to Catholicism. And so they were telling me these stories about they were required to live separately for six months. So their partner would pretend to be living with their parents, basically move some of their stuff in or maybe somewhat live with their parents, but they were spending the nights back, you know, and still p- paying the bills. Um and then they would have to take a course in how to be Catholic. It's like a Bible course. And then they'd eventually pronounce them Catholic. And then they would marry them. And to me, that seemed really old-fashioned and bizarre and fake. But I think you've got that topped, haven't you? Yeah, I guess so. With our situation, um, if I was to join for him, Harry would basically... He explained there's a whole list of stuff that would have to happen first. So... He would have to like have the right salary. He would have to buy a house first and all this other stuff. But the problem was that he had to be right. And that's a magic word, right? Right. Did he use that word a lot? All the time. When he says, I have to get right, I have to be right. What does he mean? Do you know, I still have no idea, to be honest. Like it's so foreign concept to me that I'm like, what what does that mean? It's really simple. When he says, I have to get right. It means I have to be in a position of approval with my church elders. When he says I have to live right, he means I have to live in a way that's understood and approved by my church elders. That's all it means. He equates right and wrong with church and not church. For Megan, part of the appeal in the thought of joining a cult like the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church is her becoming slowly disenfranchised with the life presented a modern, single, 20-something woman as positively the freest, best lifestyle yet imagined in the history of humanity to make women happy. I think it's kind of like from my own background. Um, Like, I had to sort of bring up myself, um, and that included, like, tidying up after myself and cooking for myself from a really young age and stuff. Um, But I also think that's why I'm, like, fiercely independent, Um, so I kind of feel like maybe it's just got to a point that like, I don't know, taking care of people is kind of my thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but also like someone taking care of me in the sense of like not having to work is kind of like, I don't know. I think that's where it comes from. Yeah. Um, but it's only been in like the last few years, um, probably like yeah two three years that it completely switched like I always kind of wanted to like pay for everything myself and not rely on anyone and I don't know I just the idea of looking after my person and my family is really appealing and I used to be a chef so like cooking obviously doesn't really bother me and having a 
tidy home that's presentable and having people around that's all like really appealing to me so you don't think that's just natural um for you you think that maybe how you grew up um I think it's kind of like the opposite of what I had because in my family it was just kind of us five so mum dad brother sister me so I never really had um like a lot of family and stuff so the idea of having like a community of people and having loads of social events having everyone over and cooking for them and just kind of the acts of service is kind of my love language I think so mm-hmm. that kind of all of that's in the community so it, it does appeal to me and there is a pretty popular trad movement rising up but you know obviously you do not need to join a cult to get this experience no probably not but um a lot of like guys i've spoken to um whether romantically or not are very against that kind of idea and traditional life and they expect like a woman to pay for herself and to provide and things like that Mm -hmm. so actually like a lot of um the kind of that traditional way of life isn't really that common I don't think at least not in the UK no I mean America has a a real traditional part of it that has died out in a lot of the rest of the countries um but yeah it, it comes down to I think it's very bad for girls to tell them they should feel ashamed of having nesting instincts and mothering instincts and, and, and all that. I think it's very bad to, to make them feel ashamed about it and make them feel that it's old fashioned or it's sexist or something, or it's that they've been trained that way by society. But at the other end of things, I also think that um, like if you're in a group that that's the only way you're allowed to be and they force it on you, then that's very different. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, my friend who's like very against the idea of joining the community said to me what about feminism but my counter argument to that is feminism is having the choice as to whether you want the traditional life or you don't want it obviously if I joined then that kind of feminist viewpoint is taken away from me because I would have to live that lifestyle but also it's kind of is my choice to go into it so it kind of ticks both boxes in a way and that's a big discussion. I just just read a book by a feminist, and her argument is that in the 20th century, we said, well, we're going to make things better for women. Now you're going to have to work. It's like, we're going to have to work? So yes, you, you will have to work now, and you will not have enough money, and it's better for women. And then they invented contraception, and it's like, now you have to have sex whenever men want, because you can always use contraception and have abortions. And And her argument is that this sounds a little bit slanted toward men, this uh, improvements for women of the 20th century, sometimes the way that it's used. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. <laughs> <laughs> so you you worked with Brethren People where the women were not allowed to wear trousers, right? Yeah, that's right. Have you ever seen a Brethren woman in trousers? Um, no, there was always a skirt or something with like leggings. Um, and this this is all based on a thing in the Old Testament that says that women aren't supposed to wear men's clothes. Are Lululemon leggings really men's clothes? Because I don't think I'd rock them very well. But that's it's based on that. And you know, right in there, there's stuff you you've been reading it. There's stuff in there about not eating pork, not eating shellfish, and not planting two different crops in the same field. And they don't care about any of that. They jump right on when it's an opportunity to control women. They're on that one. Yeah, I actually, um, I asked Harry um, a question about that because it says like 
with a woman what to do if she is menstruating and I sort of asked like would I be allowed to go to church if I was and he was just like well yeah of course and I was like well you know this kind of says differently so I don't really know so yeah it, it was something I asked because I was like well I know that women are kind of oppressed here so I was like how far is this going and controlling our bodies and stuff I kind of need to know there's a book called the year of living biblically and it's by um, a Jewish guy named A.A. Jacobs who's not a believer uh, so like an atheistic Jew and just to make a point and to get attention but it's very funny he decided in the modern world to try to follow all the Old Testament. So he had tiny pebbles in his pocket. And whenever he was in the same room as anybody he, he knew was an adulterer, he would throw the little pebbles at them because that he was supposed to stone them. His wife got furious with him because whenever she was menstruating, he would refuse to sit in any chairs that she had sat in and all of that. And she was just going to kill him eventually with him following these rules. <laughs> And it all comes down to, well, what does God want, though? Like, what is the, what is the point here? And is this for, you, for us or is this 4,000s of years ago? Does it apply to us? And if so, how? Because we would have to adjust it because things are different now. Not eating pork. Well, brethren, people eat pork. They don't eat kosher. They don't follow that one. In a way, I think Harry's um, brainwashing has kind of started to affect me in a way. Um, unintentionally, because everything you just said there, I just, it just made me realize that in the time I've been around him, it's made me reevaluate myself and kind of what have I done wrong in my life and wanting to like be a better person, but in their kind of way of a better person. And it has kind of made me anxious of like, when I would talk to him, like, goodness, am I a bad person? I feel like that's probably rubbed off from him because I've never really, I don't have regrets in my life or anything. So it's just kind of made me realize that. And you have a normal upbringing. So if someone were to convince you that you have sinned, you've done bad things, that would be a great, a new way of thinking. It would be a, a revelation that you're not used to thinking about yourself that way and you'd have to adjust. So it's hard to identify with somebody who from the moment they were born, like in the womb, they were listening to people explain that to be a human being is to be a failure, to be flawed, to be twisted and broken and dark and apt to you know everything. That's the, the upbringing. It's interesting that you say that the idea that his brethren indoctrination is something that other people could catch from him. I've never honestly really noticed it, but everything you were just sort of saying there, I was just like, huh, I feel like, because I was saying it to my mum at first the other day, I was like, you know, being around Harry makes me want to be a better person. But it made me think like, why? I've never thought I was a bad person. So why do I want to be better? Like, it wasn't just a case of bettering myself. It was, I want to be a better person. Um, but yeah, I think, because it wasn't just a case of like, I don't know. I just wanted to try and be like a bit more patient and go out of my way to help people and do what I think like a good Christian would do. But I was like, where is this kind of coming from? I thought it was to sort of be better for him or I wanted that he brought it out in me but actually thinking about it it sounds a bit more like revering talk well because of the way I was raised I see it in social justice all the time because what is one of the central sermons in a Plymouth Brethren uh, sermon and a social justice talk be better yeah there's certainly no acceptance that you are okay I noticed that in some of the people that I worked with, um, there was one guy who was 
so 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 good at his job and he had so much anxiety about it he'd never ever admit that he had actually achieved something and he'd always be like saying I, I could have done better or I should have won this case or whatever he never would acknowledge he'd done a good job and it used to baffle me it's like you're literally the best there is mm-hmm. um but he had so much anxiety of doing better being better and it obviously must come from that to to a degree I think it is a very I've, I've grown up this way I have no problem with the idea that I should try hard I have no problem uh, with the idea that I should do my best I have no problem with that excellence I think is a great thing but you can take it too far and you've read enough of the Bible to know stories where God brags about his kids, where God says like, have you seen Abraham have you seen this guy? And of course in the Bible, the devil gets to go to heaven whenever he wants. And so in the Bible, he's like, no, he's not, he's nothing special. And God's like, no, no, he's, I'm proud of this one. And Satan is saying, no, just like take away his wife and kids and I'll curse your name. That's a different one that you haven't read called Job. But there's, there's several stories there where, the job of Satan is to cast doubt on God's love, to say this person is not, in fact, okay, is not good. Whereas God has favorites. The whole Bible is about God's favorites, that Abel is his favorite and not Cain. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So it's all about who does he like for whatever his reasons are. And the role of Satan is to come in and say, God's wrong about loving you. You suck. And then go to the other ones that you have a really good point. God is being unfair. You should like tear shit up now. And that's in the Bible, the main characters. And so I find it very interesting that you go to a church and their whole efforts are to make you question goodness, to make you sacrifice goodness. So if there's a beautiful song that's being performed in the town, not allowed to go because it's worldly and bad. And also, I mean, the really, really painfully obvious thing, if you read the New Testament, is how Jesus lived his life. He did not form a church. He did not have them come into a room with him. He went out and went to everyone's house and talked to everyone in the street and went everywhere. That's exactly what we're forbidden doing. I mean, just from that, it makes me think like, how can you sit in these meetings and read the Bible with each other and then sort of abide by these rules? I would sit there and think, hang on, this is a little bit backwards. This is saying one thing, but we're doing it this way. So I guess it's that sort of thinking and questioning that gets you in trouble and kicked out. In the months since this interview, Megan tells me she has had two meetings with Brethren Elders at which she was told that joining the Plymouth Brethren Christian Church isn't just like joining a country club or something, being far more exclusive than that. In particular, rather than preaching the gospel to Megan, they are waiting for Megan to convince them that she is precisely the kind of Christian that they are before even talking about her joining. Ultimately, months later, with Megan repeatedly trying to join, she's not been allowed to attend a single service, and the request has been kicked upstairs to the PBCC's media representative, who isn't getting back to her. I had the opportunity, when making this episode, to get Evan on Zoom to talk with him about thoughts on hookup culture and delayed gratification and so on, Evan being an economist. I think open questions, the, the thing that modern society, I think, is having difficulty coming to grips with, is basically what you're saying. Can someone be happy single? Can someone be happy without a sex life or without a romance life or without a family? And what we're wanting to tell people is, oh, absolutely. Like a woman who never has a significant romantic partner um, is very accomplished. Like I came across the expression alpha widow 
recently um, in a book uh, of a woman who's a widow, not because her husband died, but because she will never have a husband because she became the man that she wanted to marry. Um, that's a, a thing that I think is we're, we're still not sure how to deal with. Some women are looking for what kind of man do I respect? And other ones are looking for, I'm going to be that man. And then the role is, well, what what is the role of a man in your life? Do we have two complementary pairings of two people with PhDs and, and everything is matching? Or do we have people with opposite? Like, it, it, what are you looking for? And this question of, can women be happy without having children, without having relationships? I think that's a tough one. And I'm tempted to say that I think it's harder for them from from my own experience i think it's harder to have a fulfilling and happy life if you have to do it yourself and i think that the the biggest and this there's lots of things you can do without getting married that make it easier but when god said about adam that it's not good for the man to be alone we all thought sex right it's not good for the man to be alone because he can't have sex but i i i think psychologically it's actually being alone i think puts a strain on your emotional health. I'm, I'm probably alone more than anyone you know. And I'm, I'm a case study in that. And, and part of that is me building a life that works for me. And so, I mean, I could, I could after work, stop at a bar in town and spend two hours after work every day, drinking and talking to the locals. That doesn't suit me. Mm-hmm. So the question is, well, what, what am I doing? Well, I'm talking to people on my computer. That's part mm-hmm. of what I'm doing. Is that better or worse? I don't know. I get to, to pick people like you to talk to instead of whoever happens to show up at the bar. Well, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm a little bit more interesting than just random guy at the bar, particularly in the case that I, it's, it's going to be hard to get into this level of a conversation with random guy right away. Oh, I, w- I would try and not even be drunk. And uh, I guess that's not appropriate in a lot of bars. But um, I, so I, I think that I'm assuming that same thing for women as for men, that mm-hmm. if you don't do the marriage thing. Um, and Louise Perry comes down pretty heavily. And, and also Bridget Phetasy has been talking about this. Bridget, Bridget Phetasy did something that either was quite contentious or she hoped that it was and got her clicks. But she basically says, I regret being a slut. She had a whole little speech because she was, and she was addicted to lots of things. Um, and she draws a connection between she was giving men what they wanted or thought they wanted in the short term. And she mm-hmm. was using substance abuse to make it easier for her not to really think about what she was doing. Right. And, and when she got sober and got middle-aged and all that stuff, she realized none of that actually worked for me. None of it was getting me what I wanted. Um, right. It was me doing what I thought men wanted. And people were saying, well, this is, you're free. You can be free. You can do what a man does. And, her conclusion along with people like Louise Perry is not only was it not going to get her what she wanted in the long term. It wasn't really what she wanted in the short term. And when men thought for like a couple months about it, they would come to the realization that it wasn't getting them what they wanted either, because I don't think there's too many men out there that just want to have an endless, you know, open tap of women and and not have any of it mean anything as much as that like, you might you could be five and say you think you should eat chocolate for every meal every day, but right. that's not actually good for you. And it doesn't make you happy and healthy. And so Bridget's conclusion is that the hookup culture thing mm-hmm. 
if Jordan Peterson were talking about it, he would certainly talk about Pinocchio and whatever that island was called where all the boys went because they didn't want to grow up and they became donkeys because they were jackasses for not growing up. Yeah, or he'd talk about Peter Pan. Yeah, Peter Pan with Never Neverland where they don't want to grow up. Pinocchio has a very moralistic Disney moral view there that if you indulge in vices, and it's very on the nose in Pinocchio that it's smoking cigars (laughs) and gambling and playing cards and drinking alcohol. It's very obvious you do those things instead of being a grown-up, instead of doing what you should do, instead of going to school, for example, you're, you stay a donkey your whole life. Um, and you, you never get to be a person of importance and respect. And I guess that's part of, part of this is that it's an interesting idea. The idea that hookup culture, rather than being a great freedom that we have won in the 20th century, and we need to just get rid of the shame about it, that in fact, it is childish behavior. And although it's probably, there's probably no use trying to like limit it or anything. Mm-hmm. You wait for people to grow up and they get where you've gotten, where mm-hmm. this is not what you think is going to get you what you need. Yeah. Um, there's something about, there's a big connection between being willing to delay gratification, being willing to delay feelings, et cetera, and maturity. Yeah. Right. You know, as you said, the five-year-old who wants to have chocolate every meal, that the child cannot delay for the future, right? That child doesn't understand that, um, you know, if you eat chocolate all the time, you'll get diabetes, you'll get very overweight, et cetera, et cetera. You'll not feel well, right? Look, this child doesn't know that. Have you um, looked but, into the marshmallow test thing? Because oh, yeah. that's kind of pseudoscience, isn't it? Or not really? Yeah, I, I, I've heard it refuted a lot that, that it doesn't, that it, it, whatever it's a test of, it's not a test of like, can you delay gratification? Like how, how good are you at delaying gratification sort of across the spheres of your life? I was, so- un- I was unduly depressed by the fact that that is one of the sample readings on the practice literacy test for all Ontario students this month. What? It's being presented as still fairly valid. And, and I think you, you know, more than me that it doesn't seem to be what it's saying it is that what what it's saying it is is that this is a simple way to test if children when they're adults are going to be able to delay gratification and you would assume that the children who can wait with their marshmallow can wait before they make the relationship sexual and try and see if it there's more to it first yeah i have a couple of things i want to say First of all, it's not obvious to me that if it's refuted, that means we should stop talking about it, because I do think it's important that people find out that there are things we used to believe that now we think is ridiculous. Very true. So so there is that. And also myths have value. And if it becomes folklore or urban legend, Mm -hmm. it still has a role to play in culture. True. I mean, think about what the marshmallow test is in its most extreme sense. It's trying to say something like, we can predict the success of this person based on how well they're able to delay their gratification at this age for two minutes. Yeah. Like it's a big it, statement. It, I mean, yeah, it's a huge thing. Do you think a human being, you know, in a meaningful sense could be reduced to one dimension? Like, no, when, when they looked at children and they did what, what we call a controlled analysis or a multivariable analysis, that mostly what predicted your willingness to wait to eat the marshmallow um with socioeconomic background mm-hmm. so basically like if you had rich parents you know you had a comfortable life you know two parents that are not divorced that you know you're you're more likely to be polite you're more likely to be well-mannered and whatever and that's that's ultimately what makes you more likely to wait 
And a marshmallow is um, really not that big a deal for you. You can get marshmallows whenever you want outside that test. Probably right. And if you're and if you're literally not being fed by your parents, you eat that friggin' marshmallow because you don't know when the next one's coming. Uh, that's, that's what right. I recall hearing about that test. The other right. thing, and that, so and so then if you take that and you go, well, let's look at the life outcomes of these people. It's like you're ignoring all of the other things yes. that might be determining their life. It's really outcomes. weird that this poor kid. We looked in the future and he's poor still. How how yeah, we must yeah. have something to do with marshmallows. Yeah, well, it's yeah, it's because he can't delay his gratification. We saw yeah. that in the marshmallow test. Yeah, if only if only he could delay his gratification. Well, he's obviously an inferior human being. Obviously, he deserves to be poor. Like the the conclusions that would be drawn from this are a little Nazi esque. Yeah, it's, it's very bad. At the point when I wrote this very early song of mine, I was working evening shift in an electronics lab. It was a clean room with us wearing static dissipating smocks and hoods. They were light blue. Only faces and hands could be seen, au naturel, as it were. Lisa was a busty, sweet-faced, big-eyed Chinese girl, and I liked her long black hair and pale, luminous skin. When she got a dramatic haircut, more practical, less glamorous, more soccer mom, less mermaid, like women praise each other's bravery so much for doing, I missed Lisa's long hair. Grace was a middle-aged, short-haired Chinese woman fairly recently emigrated to our country and city, and she gently chided Canadian-born Lisa for not being able to understand or speak Cantonese terribly well. Grace teasingly told Lisa that Lisa was a banana, yellow on the outside, but white on the inside. Lisa laughed and said this was a fair comment. Human Resources was not notified or anything. Grace was kind of our mother on shift. Of course, her name wasn't really Grace, but Puyashin. Lisa's real name was Lisa. Neil Brennan, speaking from a different century than the events discussed in this episode took place, recommends against talking to women at work with any attempt to flirt or pursue romance. And then guys go, well, what should I say at work? Nothing. Just, would you just work? Just work. Here's what women need you to say at work. Hey, Lisa, I got to get back to work. That's all anyone wants you to say at work. I wasn't the only one who noticed how cute Lisa was. Harold from Columbia, who lent me his 70s synthesizer for making whooshing wind sounds on songs from previous seasons, and who played keyboard for me on The End, the song about Doug killing himself, thought Lisa was very striking, particularly one day when she wore a black silk shirt and close-fitting black jeans. It all went so well with her black hair and white skin. Mario from Italy commented as well. Mario was always getting us to listen to this CD or that as we worked. Susie and the Banshees, Holly McNarlin, some girl singer or other. Lisa attached dye to parts, which meant using epoxy that took three hours to cure, to glue microchip parts the size of grains of rice into housings, using microscopes all shift long. After that, someone else would use a microscope to solder microscopic connections on the dye to different parts of its housing. I was in the probe and test section of the lab, seeing which assembled parts failed functionality tests, kind of like what I do with teenagers nowadays. Harold, who reminded one slightly of a young Cheech Marin in looks, personality, and lifestyle, worked packaging the parts up for shipping. He even had the mustache, though his accent was Colombian rather than Mexican. My roommate Dave had an impression of Harold based on working with him. Whenever anyone had medications of any kind out or mentioned any, Harold would ask, What is it? What does it do? And then invariably, could I try one? Mario inspected solder jobs with a microscope. He had strong opinions of how wrong-headed things in North America generally were and how much better everything was in Europe. 
This song was quickly recorded as soon as it came into my head on my cassette four tracks recorder, right when I was starting to record my serious album, The Story of Peter Gray, at a small hole-in-the-wall studio. I had been impressed by sound engineer Adam at the studio, recording a throwaway little Bob Seger, Bruce Springsteen-sounding tune for his friend's sister's Debbie turning, I don't remember if it was really 29 or actually 30. Anyway, it struck us as incredibly hooky for a one-listen friend's sister's birthday party song. So hooky that despite my only having heard it a couple of times one week in the 90s when Adam played it for us, I can still vaguely remember it. It was kind of... Happy birthday, Debbie, 29 and old and steady, rock solid like a freight train, dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum-dum, and then I kind of forget the rest of it. There wasn't much more of it anyway. I'm always grateful to Adam for recommending this expensive pair of headphones for me to buy that I still use to mix my music on. So I did a scaled-back song like that of my own for Lisa, the heartbreakingly cute girl at work, using my cassette 4-track recorder. Unlike my beautiful sad or snarly angry or even smurfy silly songs, this song is one of my rare, noisy, joyful Guitarland ones. I put some Nortel high-tech jargon in it because it seemed extremely out of place in a song that was at all romantic. I likely got that idea from Weird Al Yankovic. Found one could sing the chorus to an old 70s hit by the Carpenters in the bridge, so I did that, with the words changed. Speeded up tape-recorded voices, backward stuff, all of that featured in this recording. Girl in my lap, she's always dressed in blue Just like me, just like you, just like you and you All you can see is a pretty face That's enough to make us stare into space Lisa, Lisa, you're looking foxy As you sit up like three-hour epoxy Chris, the other studio guy, upon hearing this, smiled, impressed despite his experience of far better musicians than I, and said, That's hooky! My songs are not known for guitar riffs or hooks in general. A singable vocal line, maybe, but this was different. I had a surprising amount of trouble figuring out what the chords to this song had been when I tried to relearn it recently without rewriting it entirely. The trouble was, I kept wondering, I found the three verse chords, now what is that new chord there for the bridge, only to find it was just one of the same three chords again? I didn't know how to do a bridge in a different key back then. Bill hadn't shown me yet. I then followed the method I've been using. I did a guide track to the click. All we can see is a pretty face That's enough to make us stare into space Emailed it to Evan, who emailed back some drum parts for me to work with. Played some pretty run-of-the-mill bass guitar. Pretty face That's enough to make us stare into space 
added in the Smurf voices I did by singing to the guide track played at half speed on the old cassette four track the original song was recorded on, and then speeded back up to normal, spoofing on the Carpenters. some Barry White spoken bits without bothering to imitate Barry White's voice at all. You and I are on the same clock signal. We can multiplex and demultiplex. Make sure those dies stay attached. Electrostatic discharge in here is insane. And tossing in a whole bunch of voices. All we can see is a pretty face. That's enough to make us stare into space. I thought I'd do the same thing as on the previous song with the drum machine hand claps to add pop appeal. But I tried a Pro Tools trick I saw on YouTube in which the boringly, robotically identical hand clap sounds were slightly randomized as to their precise volumes to make them sound a bit more variable and almost human and fallible. Spicing it up with a tambourine I was actually hitting with an actual drumstick, which was human and fallible because I was really playing it. and deciding that part of the song needed more cowbell, and not having a cowbell, instead of using a frying pan this time, used the old drum machine again with the randomized volume automation on it. This made a whole percussion thing that I thought worked. Then I channeled Pete Townsend of The Who and Steve Jones of The Sex Pistols as best I could, playing a sea of guitars with the amp turned way up to the unprecedented level of three and feeding back and frightening the wildlife and so on. happens is I record really loud guitars and then have to turn it all way down to make the song listenable at all in the final mix. 
and, excited by the energy of those loud guitars, I tried singing the main vocal in a more rock-and-roll way, ending up with something that sounded blaring and irritating. And here is Mario with some CDs for a stereo and some recalls here for me to probe and taste. So I had to replace it with quiet vocals at a more conversational level. I think that Pink Floyd's Us and Them, with its tape loop repeat vocals, is one of the best produced songs ever. Us. As a result, every now and then, I try to use a tape loop sounding copy and paste job to make the same dreamy, trippy effect as they have. With this song, I learned what makes that work and what makes it not work so well. With this song, it worked only to a very limited degree, so it had to be turned down almost to the point of being inaudible. And Harold sings a song from behind your back. He says you look real good when you're dressed all in black, all in black. I decided that in order for it to really work, you need a quiet, open, slow, uncluttered mix and short, clipped-off repeat words, exactly like this part of my song didn't have. There's a girl in our lab, she's always dressed in blue Just like me, just like you, just like you and you All we can see is her pretty face That's enough to make us stare into space Lisa, Lisa, you're looking foxy As you sit applying three-hour epoxy Lisa, Lisa, dare I hope that you're looking for a moment from your microscope. Lisa, Lisa, you fill the lab with beauty. With beauty. With beauty. With beauty. Oh, 
sir, you feel the light.